Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. Stand to Reason is the show. And um, as I usually say, thank you for joining me. I genuinely mean that. Not like the rest of the stuff I just make up, but this one is a genuine and authentic statement. You know, when I give uh, presentations before audiences, um, many times what the church or Christian group or even a university group uh, arranges is, in fact, always with the university group, is a uh, Q&A session towards the end because, you know, getting a bunch of information is helpful and uh, prepares people. But there's always questions people have about the information given or other things they want clarified. And so uh, they can um, come to the microphone and ask them or they can um, text them, sometimes the case. And so on occasion when there's often a lot more questions texted in than I'm able to handle, I freak, I will ask for um, the remainder of the questions that didn't get asked in the session, so I might deal with them on the air. And I was rooting through some old papers, and I came up with a sheet that was like that. And so there are a, a number of different questions here. I think that's what it's from. Maybe it was from an interview that I actually gave, and these were the questions they were going to ask me and didn't get to them. In any event, I have some kind of interesting questions here that people, uh, that someone was raising regarding um, Christianity and my convictions, etc. And I wanted to just run through a few of those before I get to the calls, uh, those people that are calling in just now. So uh, here is one that I hear with far more um, frequency than it deserves. Okay. And the question is, why would a good God create a world that has so much evil in it? And sometimes there's a variation on this. Why would a good God create me to be a homosexual and then not allow me to experience my desires? That's another very—there's a variation here. Okay, now I have often said that questions— Regarding God, that start out, why would God, or why wouldn't God, or why did God, or why didn't God, frequently can't be answered, because they trade on something in the mind of God that, characteristically, he hasn't told us. But that isn't the problem here. The problem here is different. What is going on here is what's called an informal fallacy. That is, there is a presumption in the question regarding the Christian worldview that is not part of the Christian worldview. So there is a a mischaracterization of our view, which makes the view look vulnerable, okay? And uh, this is an informal fallacy, whether done on purpose or done by accident, uh, out of sloppiness or just out of ignorance. It is uh, still a fallacy, and this is called a straw man. A straw man is when you mischaracterize someone else's view, and then you attack the mischaracterization. So you knock down the straw man. The presumption is the mischaracterization is a much bigger target or easier to knock down than the real thing. And that's the problem here. 
and this is what's going on with the question, why would God create a world that has so much evil in it, or why would God make me gay and not let me experience it? Both of those things presume something inconsistent with the Christian view. It is not my view that God created a world that was filled with evil. It is also not my view that God created people to be gay, which, by the way, presumes that being gay, homosexual, is constitutional. It is built in. Well, we know this is false. Um, the, the science is in on this. There is no gay gene. There is no there, natural tendency towards same-sex attraction. It, it actually creates a problem for those who hold to Darwinian evolution because all these kinds of things are the things that are chosen, presumably, for by evolution because they allow you to get your genes into the next generation more effectively. And certainly no kind of homosexuality, gayness, lesbianism, whatever, accomplishes that. So if it is something genetic, how do you get those genes effectively into the next generation? You don't. So just on a strictly scientific basis, it, it is not the case that people are born that way. So then even on that basis, it's a mistake to say, why did God make me the way I was born, essentially? And of course, the Christian view is God didn't make people that way, and God didn't make the world with so much evil in it. So this is a a, a, a question or challenge that can be answered simply by appealing to the 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 view of Christianity accurately understood. When God made everything, everything was good. And it was very good. I mean, this is a phrase that's repeated a number of times. Now, you don't have to agree with what Genesis says uh, regarding this issue, okay? Because the question is an assessment or meant to point out a problem in our view. But if that's not our view, then it's not our problem. Our view is God made a good world that got broken by human beings disobeying God, and that has long-term consequences for everyone in the history of the world. The world is filled with so much evil, yes, because it was broken by human beings who disobeyed, and it resulted in evil. God didn't make it this way right? God didn't make people gay either. Not in our view. Okay, so if the challenge is to our view, then we have to address our view and not someone else's. You must critique the view we hold and not an alternate view if you want to deal with our view. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, but this principle is um, violated frequently, and this is one example. Or actually, I gave you two examples. Now, there's a corollary to this. The second part of it is, why do bad things happen to good people? Okay, now this is a, hmm, I want to say it's a trick question in a way, but I, I, uh, the words have to be qualified. This is the problem, and the theology has to be defined. Okay, so now if you are asking us 
um, a, from from my perspective once again, or from the perspective of Christianity, uh, strictly speaking, there are no good people in the extreme. Okay, um, that is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody is a sinner, and it's not just like everybody made a little mistake sooner or later here and there. When you try to quantify, and I've done this before, and I don't—I'll just give you the round number. But if you, if let's just say you only commit one sin a day, yeah, fat chance, right? And you get your first ten years freebie, and you get your anything after sixty—that's a freebie too. Now, there's we're not counting your first ten years, and we're not counting anything after sixty. We're just talking about fifty years, one a day. 365 days a year, okay? 10 years would be 3,650. 50 years would be five times that, okay? It comes out to 176,000, something like that. Infractions of the law. That's just one a day. And it turns out that's pretty generous because our sins entail not just our actions, the things we do, but the things we ought to have done and we don't do. They also include our thoughts. They also include our intentions and our motivation for the thing we do. We could do a good thing with a bad motivation, and it pollutes the whole work. So one a day is pretty generous, and it still turns out to be hundreds of thousands of infractions of the law. So what what good judge is going to let you off? Oh, well, I was good the rest of the time. Yeah, okay. Sorry about that. The fact is, nobody's good in an ultimate sense. Now, of course, we don't usually talk about the ultimate sense, although that is the sense in which God functions with regards to people. Okay? God doesn't expect perfect adherence to his law? Okay, which one of the Ten Commandments can we break with impunity without expecting God to punish us? Or any of God's laws, for that matter. No, the laws are there because they're expected to be kept. And if we break one and not the other, we're still a lawbreaker. That was James's point in James, what, chapter 1 or 2, beginning at chapter 2, I think, first half. In any event, we're all criminals, okay? Now, I think in a more casual, non-theological way, we could, add, we could say, well, some people are really bad, and some people aren't as bad. Okay, and I, I think there's, there's a common sense notion there that's in play. Now, even the people that are not so bad, I'm no Hitler kind of thing, to which I respond, good, one was enough, but you're no Jesus Christ either. And you're probably more like Hitler than you are like Jesus. So in the broad spectrum, we're probably a lot worse than we are, than we think we are. I mean, and uh, but the presumption here is that some people are really bad and some are basically, you know, pretty darn good, at least as to what we are aware of in other people's lives. Okay, so if they're basically good, then why do bad things happen to them? Well, there's a presumption that's built into the question, isn't there? And the presumption is, if we're basically good, then basically good things should happen to us. This was actually an 
a, a theological view that a lot of Old Testament ancient people held that was false. It was something that informed of the dialogue in the book of Job, which was the is the oldest book, apparently, um, in Scripture. It's the one that's the most ancient. But there they were, Job's experiencing all this hardship, and his buddies are saying, well, you must have done something really bad, because bad things don't happen to good people. That's a mistaken notion. It was even around Jesus' times, and when Jesus, when the disciples said regarding this, I think it was a blind man, is he blind because he sinned or because his parents sinned? Jesus said, no, it's so that the glory of God could be revealed, and then he was healed. But notice the theology that's behind the question. It's behind this question, too. Why do bad things happen to good people? Would you think, why would you think <laughs> unfortunate things wouldn't happen to people who are generally good? Why would you think that? That's the question. We, we, we know we live in a fallen world. This is a universal awareness. We are all aware that there's a problem in the world. Call it the problem of evil. <clears throat> this is a problem because it influences people <laughs> like us. And it influences everybody by our reckoning the good and by our reckoning the bad alike. So I, I don't know where the mystery is. Given that we're in a broken world, then we're all going to experience that, and being nicer than most isn't going to protect us from all of the contingencies of living in a fall, fallen world. Now, if we're nicer than most, in a lot of cases, we're going to get less grief, because if we weren't nice to people, they would give us more grief. If we're nice to them, they give us less. But sometimes being good is is not going to guarantee that we don't get grief, all right? You know, in our, our passage, our great passage on sharing, defending the faith from 1 Peter chapter 3, um, there Peter is talking about how, um, you know, we should be doing good. Don't return evil for evil, but bless instead. All right? And then he says, for who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Well, that's, generally speaking, not a bad policy. You are zealous for what is good. People will like you for the good, but not always. Because in the next line he says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, which means you probably are. In fact, First Peter is a lot about suffering. Even if you should, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense, an apologia, to everyone who asks you to give an answer for the hope that's within you. So, so um, that even though in general, the, the, the more virtuous we are, the less trouble we're going to have in our life. It's no guarantee at all. So the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is just a bad question. Why would you think otherwise, would be my question. We all live in a fallen world, and we're not all that as good as most people think they are, <laughs> and we think we are. Okay, so there's a thought. Now, I got, let me see what else I got here. I'm going to cross that one off because I answered that one. I think I did. All right. Uh, how is a centuries-old book made by men 
the divine word of God. Now, there are two assumptions that seem to be underlying this question, all right? And they, they both are, are mysterious, okay? How is a centuries-old book, all right, what if it was a brand new book? Would it be more likely it would be the Word of God than if it was centuries old, or actually centuries is too little? It's millennium old, multiple millenniums, from two to four, let's see, is that right? 4,000 years. Yeah, from two to 4,000 years old. Okay, so how, why is it that the age of the book somehow <clears throat> raises questions in somebody's mind as to the uh, divine source of the book? Why couldn't God reveal a book thousands of years ago instead of today? If God is going to reveal himself in a book, he's going to have to do it at some time, and that time that he does is going to be thousands of years after other time and thousands of years before the future of that time. So you're not going to be able to escape that problem. Why is that a liability? So the centuries-old part doesn't take you anywhere. All right, so we're just going to abandon that. Why don't we just say, how can a book made by men because whether it's old or younger is irrelevant to the question, be the divine Word of God. And my response is, why not? Remember, the, the claim is that it is God's book. The question here in Inspiration is very simple. What kind of book is the Bible? Is it a book by men about God? It's a possibility. And incidentally, if it's only that, if it's only a book by men about God, that doesn't mean it's false. It doesn't mean it doesn't tell us the truth about God. So if we don't sustain the claim that this is God's book, it doesn't mean that the characterization of reality in it is false. Only those places where it claims to be God's book, and if we say if somebody determines it isn't, then those lines are false. But I ask people, look, do you have any books in your library? Sure. Um, the nonfiction books, are, are there any truth in them? Sure. Are they, any of them, written by God? No. Okay, so you can have a book that's written by human beings that still tells the truth about things. And in principle, that could be spiritual things as well. So, so the fact that these books are written by God, in other words, human beings were involved in the writing of them, does not by itself disqualify the possibility that God could be the ultimate author, and that's the other option. It's either a book by men about God, and that's the long and short of it, or it's a book ultimately by God— through men. In other words, God is the one responsible for their final product, even though he is working through human beings to produce the final product. And people shrug and they say, well, how could that be? I said, how could that not be? 
your question, it, the, the issue is whether it is God's book. If we have good reason to think that God is involved, how can individual men be a liability? Well, men make mistakes. Yes, if God's not involved. But if God's involved, God can secure the final product. Isn't that clear? That doesn't mean he did secure it. It means he can secure it. That is, human beings involved in the process does not guarantee that there's going to be mistakes or errors. Well, humans are fallible. Sure they are fallible. But even fallible human beings can write truthful stuff, first of all. We already established that. But secondly, if God is involved then human beings aren't the liability people think they are. If God is the primary author, it doesn't matter whether men or monkeys wrote it. He can still accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Now, that still leaves open the question of whether God was actually involved in the way that Christians say he was involved. I'm not dealing with that issue. I'm just trying to defeat a potential defeater. Oh, that can't be from God. That's centuries old. Huh? Anything from God is going to be centuries old eventually, right? Just wait for a couple of centuries. Secondly, oh, that can't be from God. Men wrote it. Really? Can you get your dog to—do you have a dog? Sure. Can you get your dog to sit? Sure. Well, if you can get your dumb dog to sit, why do you think God can't get human beings to write what he wants them to write? He's God, after all. Now, again, that doesn't prove that the Bible is inspired in that sense. It just meant to demonstrate that this alleged limitation is not a real limitation if God is involved. Okay, so enough of that one. Now, let me just look here. Maybe I'll take one more before we break and then go for calls. How do you respond to the agnostic statement that there is a God, but we don't know who that being is? Hmm. Now, that is an odd agnostic statement, because characteristically, an agnostic with regards to the God question is a person who says, I don't know there's a God. Okay. Um, But in this case, the agnostic statement is there is a God, but we don't know who that is. Excuse me. Okay. So now we're using the word agnostic in a general sense. The agnosticism, the I don't know, is not applied to the existence of God, but to the nature or identity of that God. So how would I respond? I would respond with a question. We don't know who that is. Why would you say, oh, I would actually add, there's a prior question. Do you mean we don't know who it is or we can't know who it is? Well, let's say we can't know who it is. Why would you say we can't know who it is? Now, I don't know what they're going to respond. I got to wait for that. But that's the question I would ask. Because if somebody believes there is a God, that means there must be some means by which they know that. There's an evidential element that they have access to that allows them to conclude that God exists. Well, if that's in play 
and their question acknowledges that, why couldn't there be enough knowledge in evidence or enough evidence creating reliable knowledge of who the God is? I don't know what they would say, but that's a question they need to answer. Now, they might say, uh, let's see, the option, there is a God, we don't know who that is, and no one can know. It, it, it might be we don't happen to know, and it might be no one can know. Actually, in a certain sense, the answer to both is the same. Why would you say nobody can know? The evidence that there is a God could also be supplemented with evidence that the God is a particular one. And, or maybe we don't know, well, why don't you know? Because the options for God are available to us, <clears throat> and excuse me, it seems in principle those options can be assessed. So I don't, I, I don't understand the agnostics' challenge here. Um, the, the broader thing, issue of ag- agnosticism has to do with the existence of God, and one could say, well, I, I, a God, I don't know God exists, that's a possibility, but another a much stronger statement is no one can know. And I respect somebody who says, I'm, not, I'm undecided, I'm not sure, but for a person who say no one can know, I've got a question, is that how do you know that no one could know? It's not a self-refuting statement, strictly speaking, but it does seem you have to be You'd have to have a knowledge regarding the whole project that gives you the conviction that it's not possible to know whether or not God exists. Well, tell me, what is that knowledge you possess that justifies your view that no one can know? Okay, that's what I'm looking for in that question. Okay. All right, let's, uh, let's take a break. And I got a call on board. We'll come back to that when I return on Stand to Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? 
and Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. When it comes to answering questions about things like human identity, behavior, and sexuality, who should we turn to, man or our maker? We'll find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. friends, Greg Kokel, Stan Teresen, and Aaron. Welcome to the show. Aaron in Santa Barbara. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me on. Yes, you're welcome. Glad to have you. Uh, yeah, so my question's a bit lengthy, but um, I'm a third-year college student, uh, and about six months ago, I met this wonderful Christian girl who loves the Lord. She loves people. Uh, she's gone through some of the toughest health problems and some of the toughest family problems I've ever seen someone go through. Wait, she, wait say, say, say that last part again. She's gone just a little more slowly. It's easier to understand. She's gone through, say again. She's gone through some of the uh, toughest health problems and some of the toughest family problems I've ever seen someone oh, go through. Oh, toughest family yeah. problems. Okay, gotcha. Mm-hmm. And she's come out on top through all this. Um, uh-huh. However, there's just one thing holding me back from asking her to be my girlfriend. Uh, she believes that the Bible is silent when it comes to homosexuality. Uh, now, I believe that having same-sex attractions and temptations is not a sin, but engaging in sexual conduct is, right? Uh-huh. Uh, she's got some extended family members who are gay Christians. She does, uh, okay, she, she does have family. Also, okay. Yeah, and they're also married, and uh, they're raising a kid. Uh, she sees no wrong in what they're doing, and that's shaped her views on this to the point where like the many ideas about the mistranslations of the clobber passages, quote unquote, are her central point of contention. Um, that's that's so, a point of contention for her. The clobber, yeah, like that's yeah. Those are that's what she argues about that these passages have been mistranslated and that um, oh. the the root words have been um, manipulated to mean different things now. And so um, we differ on this matter and what it could possibly mean down the road with potential marriage and children and how he raised them so yeah, right just making things about things well uh, Aaron, I'm glad that you're young and you have a lot of time ahead of you, because I'm lamenting right now the the nice things you said about this this woman in your life are so sweet, but I think this is a fatal problem for a relationship, and um, I don't, you know, I I, I, I I hate to have to give you the bad news, but I think this is a big thing because for for a number of reasons, it isn't just a difference of theology because every relationship can handle some differences of theology, okay? Now, if there are big differences in broad theological perspectives, there's trouble ahead, or can be. So if you've got a very strongly committed Reformed Calvinist-type Christian, and you've got a Pentecostal Arminian, 
Yeah, man, these are these are whole theological systems that are clashing here. And if you both have strong feelings about it, this is this is a kind of it's not a sinful unequally yoked, but it's it's not a wise uh, yoking because there's an inequality here in a way that could cause problems. Okay, so that right. that that that's a very general statement. In this particular situation, though, you have uh, you 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 have a significant you. you there's a significant cultural issue that she has very strong opinions on, and there are family uh, members that are that are in play in this discussion that she's obviously and understandably attached to. Okay, and when somebody starts mentioning the clobber verses, and these are mistranslated, I'm just telling you this is not true. These have not been mistranslated. They have not been mischaracterized. They are crystal clear. And I know that there's a whole, uh, there's a new wave of um, gay, kind of gay affirming theology called, and they called not that kind of homosexuality, so to speak. Like this is a homosexuality that was really about pederasty or uh, about master-slave, abusive, oppressive sexuality, and the kind of sexuality being practiced now by gays who claim to be Christians is not that kind of thing. The problem with that way of of characterizing those passages is that it's just not true. For example, in the book of Leviticus uh, 18, um, the, 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 this is a prohibition of homosexuality mixed right in with prohibition against adultery, incest, and child sacrifice. They're all right together as abominations. These were the things that were practiced by the people that came bef- that lived in the land before them that God judged them for. And um, in that case, both participants in the men betting men scenario there in Leviticus 18 are punished. So this is not a situation where where you have a an a, a, a inappropriate abuse of sexuality there, like a pederasty, for example, because if that were the case, you have a victim, and the victim wouldn't be punished, but that's not the case there. What's punished is the activity. If a man sleeps with a man, the way he sleeps with a woman. So it's the activity that is identified, nothing about the relationship. We see the same thing in the book of Romans. And uh, I mean, I'm not going to go through all the verses because you know these verses, I'm sure. But the verses are not ambiguous. In fact, to to focus on the Romans passage, and this is where the New American Standard is the best translation because it's the most precise. It says that the men abandoned the woman no, abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. And the point there, very explicitly, is that God made a woman to fit a man sexually. The woman was for the man. They functioned together sexually. That's the plumbing. And man abandoned the woman God made to function with him sexually and burned in his desire towards 
a man. And, and that is very explicit there with regards to homosexuality, but the heart of the concern applies to all the rest of the sexual sin. God set up a very particular pattern, one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That would be my summary of Jesus' comments in uh, Matthew 19, going back to Genesis chapter 2. And all the perversions of that, whether it's adultery or fornication or homosexuality or bestiality, are, are distortions of that basic plan, and that's what makes it wrong. It's a distortion of that basic plan. So there are all these ways that these verses kind of entwine together to make the same kind of statement that there is a way God ordained, and anything apart from that way is just flat-out wrong. It's the nature of the behavior that's wrong. It isn't the nature of the relationship, because adultery isn't okay as long as it's not exploitive and both parties love each other, and it's a kind, loving, supportive relationship. So um, I'm, I'm kind of rattling on right now, for mostly for the listeners, because my sense is you're probably aware that the charges that these verses characterize as clobber verses are mischaracterized or mistranslated or don't take into some secret piece of the culture that now, 2,000 years after the fact, we've just discovered. You're aware that that isn't going to hunt, you know? And so the basic problem is, is this a relationship that's going to work when there are these kinds of feelings? And, And if it were me, I would say this is too much of a burden because it's a huge cultural issue right now, and there's emotional attachments to family that is going is likely to keep the young lady from ever changing her view, and sounds like she's pretty aggressive with it, given these justifications she's presented. I presume she's presented them to you, that are yeah. the the yeah these are the classic. Um, you know, it's the hand waving. You know, no, this doesn't apply, and and then they come up with this stuff that just is not biblically sound. So she's not going to change her mind. So then, what does this say? You know, I mean, you've already anticipated you're going to be in a family together. You're going to be raising children together. You're going to have all of these um, extended family enterprises together. And of course, if she was understood things the way you did, you would still have those family enterprises. But your family's approach and assessment of them would be entirely different. This puts you at odds with your potential wife on what I think is a really, really weighty cultural issue, because it, it in my view, it represents a kind of watershed as to whether you're going to stick with the clear authority and statements of Scripture on this issue, or you're going to follow the culture. Even with the rationalizations, I think what's going on is she's following the culture, and it's understandable given her emotional attachments to her family. So, I mean, God, I wish I could give you better news, but um, I think in five years you'll thank me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, Thank you for having me on.
Yes, you walk around. This is why I said, you know, you're young. I didn't get married till I was 48 years old. I had my 48th birthday on my honeymoon. So uh, you got a lot of time. And I, and I went through three broken relationships before I got married. Big ones, long-term ones. And when each one ends, it just seems like it's the end of the world and you know, you'll never feel better. But you, I'm just I'm just saying, I, I my heart goes out to you, uh, Aaron. And um, you know, you can make your decision. I just don't think this is, and it's not a sin to marry her, but I don't think it's a wise choice. And and uh, you know, if you marry, well, the saying goes, you marry in haste, you repent in leisure. Not that you're marrying in haste, but this is something that is not going to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank, yeah. thank th- you. Yes. Thank you for calling and asking my opinion on that. Okay, Aaron. Absolutely. Thank all, the, you. all the best to you. Bye. Wow. Oh, that's hard. You know, it's frustrating for me because so much damage has been done by a a a lack of integrity when it comes to the text on these issues. And by the way, I, I'm choosing my words advisedly. This isn't just a casual mistake. This is a lack of integrity, because the texts are not ambiguous. And I, I will say that it took me a long time to really work out not what the text had to say about these things, but a kind of a rationale that that um, that connected all of the aberrant sexualities together. When I say aberrant, I mean biblically aberrant, sinful sexualities. And I realized as I began, and, and this was just recently, I realized that th- what the Scripture represents is a way God wants it, and He designed it for human flourishing. He put things together in a particular way for the good of human beings. Male and female, he created them. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and everything he made was good. That's a good thing. Right there. And then Genesis 3, I'm sorry, Genesis 2, that's Genesis 1, Genesis 2, a man for this cause, a man will leave his mother and his father, notice the binary sexuality there, and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate, Matthew 19, one man, one woman, becoming one flesh for one lifetime. Okay, so there it is. That's the plan. All variations, all deviations are wrong and destructive. They are wrong because they violate God's plan, and they're destructive because God's plan is for flourishing, and any deviation from the plan limits flourishing. No duh. I mean, if you stand back and look at a society who has violated in all of these ways, you see all of the problems that result from that. Can there be problems in regular good, you know, God, marriage is following the pattern that God established? Of course, because everybody's broken, everybody's fallen, but you're complicating massively. When you willfully 
break the pattern, and it's worse when you call it good. <clears throat> Notice what it says in Romans. I cited Romans 1, the passage itself, the so-called clobber verse, but go to the end of the chapter. There's a whole bunch of other nasties that are included there, all examples of people suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, Paul's theme of sorts for that section. And then he says this at the end of chapter 1, not only do they do these things or those things, but they give hearty approval to those who do them. We're doing it, and we're cheering everybody else on that's just like us, and that's exactly the way it is. And, you know, I'm thinking about Aaron. Was it Aaron, the, the caller? Yeah. Um, wisdom dictates, and this is, the, this, these, I applied this in my own life. When you see big red flags on the horizon, you stop immediately and move in another direction. The more you get invested in a circumstance the, that, that probably is not going to work out, and I so appreciate Aaron's courage and willingness to call me and hear what I had to say, but the sooner you, you move in a new direction, the better. This is just not... A good situation. By the way, and this is only one example, there could be a, a lot of different moral issues and biblical issues where a person deviates from. And, when, and it, it, some, some variations are within the pale, okay? So you could have Arminians and Calvinists, you could have, uh, you know, liturgical types and non-liturgical types, you got Pentecostals, non-Pentecostals, you got all that. And these differences, these are cultural theological differences, that could create tension in a marriage, but these are not off the reservation. This one is off the reservation. I-M-H-O, my humble opinion. So, um, and we probably shouldn't take a, a break right now. I just got about 11 minutes left. So let me take some more of these questions I have here in front of me. Here's one about science. Why believe in a creationist worldview now that we have the theory of evolution? Now, uh, this is a confused question because it, it's, it's to some degree it is comparing apples and oranges. Creationism is how the world started. It's coming into being of these things. Now, it does seem to entail the coming into being all the particular creatures, all right? Um, and evolution deals with the biological development of living things, so it would touch on a portion of that, but it doesn't obviate creation proper. That is, if, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, you still got to have something to work with to evolve. Kind of reminds me of that joke, the guy, it was a contest between an atheist and, oh, how would it go? Not an atheist and God, somebody in God, where the person said, God, I can make life too. I can do what you did. I'm a chemist. I'm really clever. I can do that. I can make life out of dirt. And so he said, I'm going to show you. And then he gets the dirt. And, Jesus, and God says, wait a minute. He said, what? You got to get your own dirt. 
Okay, so that's the point here. The point is that evolution in principle talks about actually not even how life started, but how given life it developed. Strictly speaking, Darwinian evolution has to work with reproducing living things. But of course there's a materialistic process that governs evolution on that view, and so it would have to be a materialistic process that was responsible for the origin of life. But evolution just speaks to the development of life. It doesn't speak to the existence of the universe. And that's what creation speaks to, and it also adds that God is responsible for the development of life. Working that out is, takes more detail, but so, um, and so I'm, I, I, there's a kind of apples and oranges thing going on here, all right? But there's something else, too. Um, now, we have the theory of evolution. I, I don't think the theory, and some people wouldn't call it a theory, they'd call it a fact. Well, in order to have a fact of evolution, you have to have life coming from non-life or evolution to work with by pu purely materialistic causes. And you, we don't have that. We don't have any reason to believe that that's, that dead stuff can become living stuff. So you can't get a kickoff. And secondly, for there to be a legitimate process of biological evolution that explains things, you're going to have to have um, a clear understanding and evidence that things go from one type of thing to another type of a completely different type of thing. You're going to have to have this this transition from one form to another, and this is another problem because the fossil record doesn't show transitions like that. It shows saltations, big jumps. Now, when it jumps from one thing, fully formed thing, to another fully formed thing, and then to, allegedly, another fully formed thing, some figure, the middle fully formed thing that's in between the other is the transition, but that's not the problematic transition. What about all the things that are half this and half that, that have to be in place in order for that enterprise to be validated? And the problem is you're not going to find a half this and a half that, a half leg and a half wing, because it won't be able to walk or fly, and it'll be eaten by the first Tyrannosaurus Rex that comes by. Okay, that's the that's that's one of the problems with the so-called transitional forms. I've written about this, but it's uh it, it's but but simply put, you've got two pillars that have to be in place. You have to have the origin of life, which we don't have in a materialistic sense, and you have to have clear transitions between all these forms in a way that's convincing that one thing evolved from the other. But what we have is saltations. We have these big jumps, and this is why you have punctuated equilibrium, which is a, you know, secularist scientific view uh, advanced by the, the late um, uh, Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard and uh, one of his buddies. And they weren't very nice in their promotion of their idea. That's why they call it evolution by jerks. <laughs> But the jerks part didn't just apply to the guys, but it applied to the jumps, the saltations, not this steady, even flow that classical Darwinism requires. And so we don't have verification in the kickoff, and we don't have good verification in the transitions, then why is it that we demand that evolution is a fact? Because there's no other alternative 
that's naturalistic. Okay? And, um, okay, well, we don't want to get into the God of the gaps. This isn't a God of the gap. There is no gap. We have a good explanation, and it's intelligent design explanation, and explains the facts and the evidence much better than a naturalistic process of neo-Darwinian synthesis. So uh, I reject Darwinian evolution on the merits, not because I'm a Christian, not because I'm committed to the Bible, because I don't think it's sound. And it is obviously so if people look at it with an unjaundiced eye. Okay, so I walk out from the, from the office one night, and there are all these ants running back and forth in a stream. You've seen it happen. They're doing stuff, carrying things back and forth. They're following a little path of pheromones. If you put a, your finger down and rub the concrete a little bit right there, they'll run right up to the edge of where you rubbed it, and they won't know where to go because you just rubbed off the scent. And they'll look around. Eventually, they'll figure it out. But here's the question I asked. How do they know what to do? This is a colony, right? This is a social critter. How do they know what to do? Their interactions are incredibly complex. Never mind the bodies they have that can hoist, you know, 50 times their own weight, run like crazy, move around, do all this. Never mind the complexity of their body. What about the complexity of their social organization? You can't just wave the wand of, of evolution and say, well, they evolved that way. How do you know they evolved that way? What, what reason do we have to think that something with that kind of complexity could evolve? We have, we have different critters wildly separated from themselves on the evolutionary tree of life that can navigate by internal GPS. I'm talking about fish, okay, like salmon. I'm talking about mammals, like whales. I'm talking about reptiles like sea turtles. I'm talking like insects, like like uh, um, monarchs. I'm talking about birds, like arctic terns, and a whole bunch of others. How are they going to? How do they? How do they do that at all? How does anyone do that? How does any one individual do that? By a naturalistic means some kind of Darwinian little bitty changes that happen, that each little change increases its ability to reproduce. It's not survival, it's reproduction that's key here. If they survive forever, a thousand years, but never reproduce, they're not going to get their genes into the next generation. Okay, how can they do that? And how is it that so many critters have this ability to do that, and they're wildly, they're widely separated on the evolutionary tree of life. How does that happen? They're not passing it to each other. How do things learn to fly? You know, you got insects flying, you have birds flying, you have fish flying, you got reptiles flying, you got mammals flying. All independently? Developed by accident? Seriously? And the, the one that's most remarkable is the birds. Incidentally, if you want some insight on this, Get a video that was made by Illustra Media, it made four or five of them, that are all fabulous. You'll never be embarrassed to show this to anyone. This particular one is called Flight. There's also one called Living Waters, there's one called Metamorphosis, and there's one called... What's the third one? The fourth one called... 
Metamorphosis Flight, Living Waters, and can't remember. But you can get them as a set on Amazon. They're magnificent. The flight one, they're all magnificent. But you will see why it is from the evidence of your eyes and your common sense design intuition why the things that you see in the natural world could not have happened by accident. They took know-how, and we can recognize when a thing takes know-how to make. That's why when you, you, you do a little origami thing with a piece of paper and you flop it around, you make this little bird. I owe this illustration to Doug X. Kids look at it and say, oh, that's cool. Show me how to do it. Because they know it takes know-how to make that. Well, if it takes know-how to make a little origami swan, why doesn't it take know-how to make a real swan? And adding a bunch of time isn't going to solve the problem. There's too much complexity. There isn't a mechanism that's adequate to accomplish the task. That's the problem. So, why believe in creation as a worldview rather than the theory of evolution? Because it explains what evolution can't explain. The evidence is there. It's not a God of the gaps. It's an explanation that fills the gap. Naturalistic explanations can't fill because the gap looks like or the evidence looks like someone was doing the thing. All right, I'll leave it at that. Greg Kokel here. Stand to reason. Give him heaven. Bye-bye.